Have you ever loved someone so much that you followed them around and talked endlessly about them to all your friends and family? That's how much we love rhododendron, a quirky and amazing genus of flowering plants with a deep human history and an incredible ecological legacy. Follow along on our adventures as we learn about the remarkable things that folks all around the world have done for the love of rhododendron. Episode 2, Yogurt for Your Plants. In this episode, we meet Dr. Jean Burns and PhD candidate Yu Liu to learn about their research program focused on the science of gardening. They describe their recent findings on the important role of microbes that live in, on, and around rhododendron in determining plant growth and survival. They assure us that some microbes can actually be good for rhododendrons, and we find out how the pure aesthetic joy of rhododendron can lead to a deeper understanding of the basic biological processes of plant-soil interactions that lead to species coexistence. Now, that's not so far-fetched as it might seem, for as he sat alone in a garden, Isaac Newton in 1666, age 24, fell into a speculation on the power of gravity. Hi, Roto lovers. Welcome back. And if you're new, thanks for joining us. I'm Juliana, and I'm going to be your host today for a really, really fun episode with Dr. Jean Burns, who's an associate professor of biology at Case Western Reserve University, and a PhD candidate working in her lab, Yu Lu, who also goes by the name of Grant. Jean is one of my closest rhododendron collaborators. In fact, everything you've seen from me in rhododendron has a little bit of Jean's intellectual contribution to it. We've been uh, kind of building this really great research program together, and it's part of a bigger research program that Jean has that actually is not just rhododendron. So Jean, I'm wondering if you can give us a big picture overview of what your research program is all about. Of course. Thanks so much, Juliana, for having us and for doing this wonderful podcast. I'm really excited to share with you some of my newfound enthusiasm for rhododendron. I think they're such an incredible group of plants um, and they're, they're just so much fun. Um, I've really loved learning about them and working on them. Our, our larger research program in my lab is about plants and their population dynamics and their communities. And I probably don't need to tell you guys this, but plants are incredibly important for humans. We need them for our food. We need them for the air that we breathe. They are essential to water cycling on our planet and carbon sequestration. And so their importance is essentially ever growing. We, we really can't overemphasize our need for plants as humans. And they're just beautiful and they make us happy. So that, that is probably one of my favorite things about working on plants and being a plant ecologist is just the, the sheer beauty of them. Um, so, so it's a great privilege to be able to do that for a living, to do that as a job and to like enjoy the plants and what they give to us. Um, it's, it's just such an awesome job. Um, so I feel very lucky to have it. 
I often tell prospective students in my lab that the kind of research we do is essentially gardening for science. We do a lot of hands in the dirt, planting of things, growing them, and asking ourselves the question, what makes this plant happy or unhappy? Like, what, what does this plant need? How, what is, how does it respond to the environment? We are interested in understanding, for example, how plants interact with the soil environment. And that seems very simple and basic, like we really should have it figured out by now. But the soil is an incredibly complex community and ecosystem full of both biotic and abiotic things, um, including like nutrients, water, texture differences, soil microbes. Um, and so some of our research program focuses on interactions between that soil system and plants as well as interactions between plants and other plants. So plant-to-plant -plant competition, facilitation or mutualisms um, can be of interest to us. And we're interested in answering basic research questions like how do those interactions scale up to influence the plant population dynamics? That is, does the population grow or does it contract? What makes some species really invasive? meaning they come from somewhere else and they spread rapidly in the landscape, they're a problem species. Uh, for those of you in our region of the world, the Great Lakes um, in North America, you might be familiar with the invasive species zebra mussels, for example. Not a plant example, but a great example of an invasive species because it is native to Europe, it was introduced to the Great Lakes region, it has spread really rapidly in the Great Lakes, and because of its filter feeding, it really changes the the whole water ecosystem um, and it rapidly colonizes and encrusts things like pipes so it can clog up water pipes and sewer pipes. It's a huge, uh, hugely problematic species because of its rapid population growth. And so our research questions often center around, well, why is this species that has been introduced why has its population boomed and it seems to be taking over the world, whereas other species have been introduced and they're they're really you know growing slowly their populations are are. Um, barely hanging on, as it were, and, and so our, our research questions are about those population dynamics what makes some species really boom and others bust. Um, and we're also interested in, in communities, so we would like to understand, for example how to best restore native communities of plants. And some of our research has used, um, for example, native tree species restoration to ask how plant interactions with soil microbes might shape restoration success. For example, um, former graduate student in my lab, Andy Lance, did some very nice restoration experiments where he um, manipulated soil microbial communities and asked how can we best restore those tree communities? Um, so, so basically, overall, we're interested in these population and community questions and would like to know how do those interactions scale up? How do they influence big picture things like populations, communities, um, and would like to do so in a way that addresses some really important applied questions like, how um, can we restore native communities and their important ecosystem functions like carbon sequestration or water cycling? And how can we, um, how can we 
do a good job of growing plants for food or for agriculture. Um, doing so can be incredibly important uh, and is becoming more and more difficult as climates shift and extreme conditions like drought and flooding become more problematic. So uh, the sort of urgency of that problem of understanding, well, how do plants cope with greater and greater stressors? The urgency of that problem is really growing every year. Um, and our research is attempting to address some of that problem. So cool. I like the, did you call it gardening for science gardening? That is very, very appealing. And the neat thing about that is it shows the connection. It shows the, the application of the basic research. There's still so much to learn. I think people often think that textbooks tell you everything. And as scientists, we're like, oh, there's, a, there's more and more, and we can dive in deeper and deeper. And the, the things to learn are infinite you know so i really like that perspective so you you're a, a phd student in dr burns lab can you tell us a little bit a big picture of what your phd work has been and and how that fits into this big picture that um dr burns just painted for us hello uh i'm grant from dr jim burns lab uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to Juliana for inviting me to um, take this interview. Yeah, as Jean said, uh, two, two of our important aspects in the lab uh, is about plant innovations and uh, plant-soil interactions. So uh, my PhD work focuses on these two aspects. So my PhD work focuses on plant innovations and um, the plant-soil microbial interactions. And I think we will talk more about my study on rhododendron today, right? So okay, uh, my PhD work focuses on the plant-soil interactions like the soil microbial effects to plant performance. I conducted, uh, I conducted a phylogenetic analysis to study uh, how the soil microbes affected the plant um, invasion and plant resistance to pathogens. One important aspect of our lab research is using multiple rhododendron species as a model system to study the plant-soil microbial interactions. In studying plant resistance to pathogens, uh, we use rhododendron seedlings and we plant the seedlings in the greenhouse. And we also treat the rhododendron species with their specific root raw, uh, root raw pathogens, Phytophthora cinnamomide. And um, I'm very happy that because um, this project is collaborating with Holden Arboretum. And uh, I'm very happy to contribute to the big picture of our lab work through this project. So I think you used a term that many people may not be familiar with, phylogenetic analysis. What does that mean? So, um, so phylogenetic analysis means we, um, when, so when we do a model estimations, we incorporate the phylogeny information into the model and 
the reason why we use phylogenetic analysis that um, we we want to avoid the we want to ameliorate the risk of pseudo replications. Well, this will be a long story, and um, so uh, I would say um, actually a phylogenetic analysis is very important for many studies on multiple species or multiple groups. What we know, so we, we already know that more closely related species are um, more likely to share their traits, right? So this could be a problem of pseudo replication, which is a kind of um, inappropriate replication that violating the assumption of data independency. For example, if we study on a thousand species, this is crazy. So this species belong to only, while this species belong to only two groups, taxonomically, right? Uh, in this case, the species in the same group might not provide independent information because they share their traits. So two groups in the study might provide only two independent data points instead of a thousand data points in extreme cases. As a solution, phylogenetic model analysis can take the phylogeny information as an error structure in the model so that, um, with, so that with the phylogenetic analysis, we are able to ameliorate the risk of the pseudo replications to avoid these inappropriate replications. That's why we conduct phylogenetic analysis. I think you just helped me understand it a little bit more. So thank you. That was a really good explanation. I think the only thing I would interject is for those of you who don't know, a phylogeny is pretty much like a family tree. You can equate them in, in some ways. So basically just putting all of the relatives on that tree together and asking who's related and how closely. So I really love your explanation of why, why do we need this analysis? I thought that was really interesting. And I don't think it's something that people have thought about as much in rhododendron studies, but it's super important because we have, as you mentioned, we have a thousand species in this clade. And it is ridiculous to think about measuring all 1000, but I think we should try. Jean. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to follow up on what you and Grant were just talking about with phylogenetic methods. It's really core to a lot of the work we're doing in the lab because it allows us to make broad generalizations that we wouldn't otherwise be able to make. So it's incredibly important if what we're, we're trying to do is answer big research questions. And I wanted to draw a little analogy, maybe to, to make it a little more concrete to think about this, this phylogeny thing. Darwin is, is famous for um, thinking about relatedness in the context of breeding pigeons. Pigeons were <laughs> and are um, bred to have all of these different incredible varieties with lots of um, sort of wacky feathers and, and fancy, um, fancy traits. And maybe an even more familiar example might be dog breeds. So similarly to pigeons, people have bred dogs to have all of these incredibly diverse different traits. They're all one species, but they are all, um, 
derived from one, one common ancestor that they all um, have some sort of relatedness to one another. And if you were to look at all the dog breeds and their genealogy, you could draw a little map where you have um, lines between breeds and it would show you across those lines, oh, here are all the different connections among the breeds. Here's how you know we, we got the different lines with all of these different traits. Um, you could think of that as very similar to a phylogeny, just on a very different scale. Within a species, you can kind of draw a little bit more crossing lines. Um, you can have more interbreeding within a species. But across species, you could also draw lines across species that show you who's closely related to who. And we can do that within rhododendrons using, for example, molecular techniques where we can look at the DNA of those different species of rhododendrons. We haven't done um, the sequencing work in our lab, but we've taken advantage of the knowledge of other people who have done sequencing and who have described the um, gene sequences within these different species and used that data to infer relatedness. So what Grant has done as part of his PhD research has taken advantage of that kind of existing framework in the analyses to, as he said, correctly uh, infer the, these big picture patterns while understanding that, that evolutionary context, essentially the family tree that you're describing. Um, and, and so that's, I think one of the things that makes Grant's research really powerful is this, this kind of big picture context of evolution or the family tree. Thank you. That is really, really interesting to think about how these ideas have been around. Darwin had them, and I'm sure he wrote down, he wasn't the first to come up with it. So that shows you it, it's been at least a hundred and some years we've been thinking about this question and we're still working on it. So science is a little slow, but that's okay. We'll get there. <laughs> um, that really segues next into my next question. So You've been conducting this really cool research together on rhododendron, and a lot of the work that you've done is focused on these plant soil feedbacks. Can you describe a little bit more about what plant soil feedbacks are? Yeah, I'd like to um, really nerd out for a second um, and, and draw like an even bigger umbrella around the kind of work that we do. I often say that the work we do in our lab is about plant soil interactions. And that probably sounds like a really fine line to draw between interactions and feedbacks, but interactions include lots of different possible things. Um, and when I say interactions, I mean, anything. It could be positive, negative, neutral. There are, if you were to like zoom in on a plant root and look at what little microbes are there, there are mutualists there, there are pathogens, there are things that we just have no, absolutely no idea what they do. Um, and, and so there are really a wide variety of different types of interactions that can happen between plants and organisms in the soil those interactions are not all necessarily going to lead to a plant soil feedback. And so when scientists say feedback, they mean something very specific. They mean that one species affects another and then that loops back to influence another thing yet again. So for it to be a feedback, it has to be a loop. 
Um, and, and I think this would be a lot easier to understand in a very concrete way. So I wanna give you like a very concrete example of a feedback. Um, if you've ever grown potatoes in your backyard, you know that it is a bad idea to grow potatoes in the same patch year after year after year. And the reason it's a bad idea is because they get pathogens, like for example, Phytophthora pathogens, um, one of which caused the Irish potato famine. These pathogens are very damaging and they build up in the soil over time. And if you grow a potato for a year in a patch of soil, um, if it happens to get some of this pathogen on it, that pathogen will grow in abundance and then there's more of it in the soil and then they have their little um, dormant spores that can last through the year. And then the next season, if you plant potatoes in that same patch, there's quite likely to be a lot of pathogen around. And so the plant is more likely to get an infection. Um, if, if you keep growing the same plant year after year in that same patch of soil, you are more and more likely to get infection and disease. So that's a feedback because the plant is leading to an increase in abundance of the pathogen. The pathogen then grows on the next plant and it feeds back on itself so that you get more and more disease over time. That's called a positive feedback because it happens like over time and you get more and more of the pathogen. Now for the plants, for the potato plants, that's a bad thing, right? That, that positive plant soil feedback leads to bad effects on our, our plants. So it's a really important thing to know about because as a home gardener, if if you want to grow potatoes, you can rotate with them with another crop next year, and it helps reduce, reduce the pathogen load because there's no potatoes for that pathogen to, to um, grow on, and you know it, its population is going to dwindle over time. It does have those dormant spores, but they can only last so long. And so over time, if you rotate your crops, you get fewer damaging pathogens, at least for some kinds of crops like potatoes. So plant soil feedbacks can be really important to know about and farmers and gardeners have known about them for a long time. Ecologists started really taking notice of them from kind of a theoretical perspective, probably around 1997 when Jim Beaver published a really lovely theory paper where he demonstrated that these feedbacks can lead to consequences for plant communities. Because again, if you get that positive plant soil feedback, it's really damaging in this example to the potato. And so you should get fewer and fewer potatoes over time. So um, the, the plant soil feedback should lead to consequences for the population. That's really important for kind of the basic science questions like, oh, invasive species, because we wanna understand, well, what makes some species when they come into a novel range, just spread and go nuts? Why do they do that? Well, in some cases, they might, for example, be escaping from pathogens that were limiting them in their native range. And if that's the case, that sort of escape from pathogens um, and that, that kind of continuing to, to have escaped over time, that's a thing that could allow them to be um, quite invasive. So that combination of enemy escape um, and maybe some other things as well, like mutualists that might be present in the soil those things could combine to help facilitate invasive species. Um, so overall, I would say our research is really interested in plant soil feedbacks, but also more generally in plant soil interactions. Not all interactions are feedbacks. Pure enemy escape is not necessarily a feedback in itself. It's just leaving your enemies behind. And over time, and our recent meta-analyses have shown this, um, over time, 
we might actually expect those invasive species to start picking up some new pathogens and start experiencing more negative effects over time um, in the soil. And that is something that, that we see happening in some study systems. So I think it's useful, at least from an ecologist's perspective, to, to distinguish between interactions and feedbacks and to think about whether an interaction really is a feedback loop or whether it's um, a kind of temporary interaction that's going to change over time. Mmm, delicious nuance. <laughs> I love it. That is so cool. So in thinking about the this plant soil interactions and this phylogenetic perspective that you're taking, why are why is it important to put those two things together specifically? We're interested in understanding general principles. Like that's one of the, the sort of holy grails of science is are, are there any general principles that we can kind of take away from all that delicious nuance in the study systems that we're working in? Um, and by looking across a really broad suite of species and incorporating their relatedness, we hope to get at some of those general principles. So in the context of some of the research that Grant and I have been doing, um, one of the things that rhododendrons are subject to, one of the problems that they have is a disease called root rot. And root rot disease is caused by Phytophthora cinnamoni. Um, I will let Grant tell you a little bit more about um, the sort of details of the, the study system. But this disease causes the rhododendron plants to wilt. Um, their, their roots are obviously rotting, they're dying. Um, and it's, it's an incredibly damaging disease. From the perspective of home gardeners, if you grow rhododendrons at home, you probably know about these diseases or at least their symptoms. You know if you grow a rhododendron in a really low and wet spot, it's quite likely to be very unhappy, quite likely to start wilting um, and looking diseased. So this is a big problem for the home gardener. It's a big problem for the nursery industry too. It costs them many millions of dollars a year and lost production. So, so it's a damaging disease and it's a big problem. Not all rhododendron species are kind of equally vulnerable to the disease and its, its problems. And if you look across a wide suite of species, you see variation in that vulnerability. There, there are species that are really vulnerable, species that are well known for being not so vulnerable, like rhododendron hyperethrum is well known for not being very vulnerable, and it's often used in breeding programs to try to breed for disease resistance. If you look across a, a phylogeny of rhododendrons, that can be especially nice because um, it turns out that Grant's research demonstrates that there are species that are both very susceptible to the disease and very resistant to the disease, within a series of groups. So taxonomists would call these groups sections, um, but they're just closely related groups. Think of them as little subfamilies, if you will, within the rhododendron. So within each of these little subfamilies, there are species that are susceptible and species that are resistant. And so if there are things in common across those groups amongst the resistant species, that really has the potential for general principles that has the potential for oh it's replicated it's happened again and again and again um that that has the the possibility of helping us answer these these big picture questions about what makes some species 
more vulnerable to disease and what makes others resistant. And if we can find the answers to those questions, the long-term dream would be to be able to either breed or even use genetic engineering to engineer species that are particularly resistant to disease or other stressors. And so from a food production standpoint, especially as stressors accumulate with climate change and we get more and more extreme kinds of uh, weather cycles, it would be incredibly beneficial to be able to engineer species that are resistant to disease, resistant to, to other stressors. So that is the, the sort of long-term dream and having replication across the phylogeny enhances the hope that we will find some of those dream um, genetic switches, if you will. Why do you think that these plant-soil interactions should matter to people who grow rhododendron in their garden? I think you've given a, a lot of clues here, but I just want to put a sharp point on it. Why, why is this important for, for gardeners? For gardeners, I actually have some rhododendron in my yard, so so I um, am a gardener at heart. Um, and like I mentioned, when you're thinking about growing your rhododendrons in your yard, you're probably thinking about trying to place them in a place with really good soil drainage, and that. Um, it serves multiple purposes. The plants really are just very unhappy when they're waterlogged. Um, they do better when they dry out between waterings. Um, but also when they are waterlogged, they are much more susceptible to diseases like the um, root rot disease that I mentioned, which is caused by Phytophthora cinnamoni. Um, Phytophthora cinnamoni is a water mold, an oomycete or oomycete, depending on who you are. Um, the, the, the water molds um, are incredibly damaging. I, I mentioned there's another Phytophthora species that caused the Irish potato famine. Um, they, the Phytophthora cinnamoni alone can infect over 5,000 species of woody plants around the world. So it is not just rhododendrons and azaleas, but as a home gardener, you probably care about these diseases because they're, they're very unsightly and they would kill your, your plants in your backyard. So if you are looking for uh, a plant to, to plant in your garden, you might be looking for a cultivar that's a little bit disease resistant to perhaps combine with your good cultivation techniques of really well-drained soil and, and all the other um, good cultivation techniques you're, you're probably reading if you're, you're planting a shrub, um, you would also maybe consider planting um, a disease-resistant cultivar, like a hybrid that has some rhododendron hyperethrum in it maybe, um, or one of these other known um, disease-resistant cultivars. And our research has, um, I think, expanded on the knowledge um, that we've been building as a rhododendron community in terms of what species are resistant and susceptible to this pathogen. Um, until our work, there was really very little research on azaleas, the, the Pentanthera group of deciduous azaleas, which horticulturally are known as azaleas. They are um, scientifically within the rhododendron genus. So I still sometimes refer to them as rhododendrons, but the azalea group, um, like the beautiful flame azalea, um, the, these um, species are very popular, very attractive. Um, and there was relatively little known um, across some of the, the species about how susceptible or resistant they were to root rot disease. And so, um, some of Grant's research has given us new insight 
for example, rhododendron atlanticum, um, his research has demonstrated that it, it is quite um, resistant to the effects of the pathogen. So when he adds the pathogen to the soil, the, the plant just seems to do completely fine. It's, it's incredible. Um, and, and so I think we're, we're learning new things all the time about the wide variety of species um, and some of them, how they might be resistant to um, infection by these pathogens. So that's incredibly valuable for a home gardener because if we breed new, new varieties or um, if you really love geeking out on rhododendrons, maybe you're even into finding the species themselves. Some of them are available in the marketplace and you can look for say the flame azalea, rhododendron, calendulaceum, and you could plant this beautiful native flame azalea, which has gorgeous orange to yellowish um, flowers. And if you plant like a, a species rather than, than a hybrid that's like a single genetic um, kind of cultivar, you often get variety in color form that's very interesting. So if you're one of those home gardeners who has like a hedge or a big row of plants you wanted to do, you could do like a variety of these flame azaleas and get that variation in color from yellow to orange with all the, the mixes in between. Um, so it would make a really gorgeous hedge. Um, and they, they turn out to be fairly um, resistant to this pathogen that's um, quite problematic in the industry. So if you're a home gardener, I think you should care about plant soil feedbacks, much as they sound like a, a little nerdy side note um, for a, a plant ecologist. You don't necessarily have to know the terms, but it is helpful to be knowing like, oh, there are some things that are more resistant to the pathogen. Some of these things um, are, are gonna grow really beautifully for you in your garden. That, that's something that's worth thinking about. Yeah, I think that, the more we know about our soil and how to make it right, that's the secret for rhododendrons. And I see this as also potentially expanding where we can grow them because, you know, even here in Northeast Ohio, we've got clay soil. It's it's hard to make good drainage <laughs> in, a, in a clay soil. So I think that's really important for, for home gardeners to think about. And fun fact, you mentioned seedlings. Um, my garden is full of plants that were pollinated by hand by Ewan Grant. I have calendulaceum, I have prinophyllum, I have mole, I have atlanticum, I have austrinum, and they're doing beautifully. Uh, some of them are five or six feet tall now, and I have a beautiful hedge. And um, the color variation in the calendulaceum is mind boggling. I have my favorite one, it is fuchsia and hot orange. It's a gorgeous plant. And I think when we buy plants at the store, they're all the same. And so just thinking about that idea of looking at species from this perspective as native plants, looking at the variation and thinking about that from the cultural perspective, because I can imagine you might even find, find a plant within a seedling array that might actually be a little more resistant and you could have a winner there. Um, so that's pretty cool. I think this is a good point to ask Grant a little bit more about your dissertation research. You looked specifically at how these plant soil interactions and Phytophthora result to uh, relate to species. So can you describe the results of that research a little bit? Sure. 
I'm very happy to share my results of my rhododendron research. We had eight rhododendron species in greenhouse experiment, and we added their conspecific soils collected from the field to the experimental groups. While we added the same amount of sterilized soils into the control parts. And then we treated the parts and we treated half of the plants with Phytophthora pathogens. Also, this kind of pathogen is this kind of pathogen is known as rhododendron root rot. And after harvesting the plants, we analyzed our data and we found a significant effect of live soil affecting the plant performance uh, through our phylogenetic model analysis. Soil microbes can greatly increase the survival of rhododendron species in the presence of their pathogens at a cost of plant growth. This is our main result. And this result is consistent with the hypothesis of plant growth defense trade-offs. Plant growth defense trade-off hypothesis hypothesized that plant allocating more resource to growth might allocate less to defense. For example, more fast growing plants tend to be more susceptible to the pathogens. And this is our main conclusion of the study. That life is all about trade-offs, isn't it? You can't be good at everything. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And you can't be stress resistant and grow fast. It's, it's a trade-off. You used an, a term that I think our audience might not be familiar with, which is conspecific soil. And I think when people think of microbes, they mostly think of them as being bad. You know, we know that we need to use sterilization to get rid of coronavirus, which is a microbe. So I think can you explain a little bit more how, what conspecific soil is and how that could be a good thing, like the microbes in it? Yeah, so cons conspecific means the same species. So conspecific soils are collected from um, the same species. For example, if we have rhododendron atlanticum, we collected the soils from the field right under the plant, <laughs> rhododendron atlanticum. So we collected the soil at Holden of Arredon and, and then we bring the soils back and we dry them in greenhouse. And after that, half of the soil will go to, um, will go to autoclave. So we have a sterilized soils. By sterilizing the soils, we want to um, exclude all soil microbes. That's why our soil treatments includes the live soil and sterilized soil. Most people think of microbes as bad. So I think they might be confused as to why soil full of microbes would be good for pathogen resistance. Yeah, I'd love to give another example um, of why soils can be good. Um, so Juliana, you and I have talked about um, a, a recent grant that we were just awarded from the Horticultural Research Institute. Um, and I very boldly called it yogurt for your plants, um, <laughs> which might be a little bit of an oversell, but I wanna uh, draw an analogy for you between our gut and the roots of a plant. 
you, you probably already know yogurt's supposed to be good for you because it contains probiotics, right? And those probiotics, those bacteria that are good for your gut and good for your digestion, and they help make certain nutrients more available. And there've been some fairly convincing studies um, in the last decade that demonstrate that a diverse and healthy gut microbiome correlates with good health outcomes for humans, including like disease resistance um, and just general better health, lower levels of systemic inflammation in the body. Plants um, similarly have a microbiome, that is they have bacteria, fungi, what have you that are associated with them, including on their roots. So their roots are very important for them. Um, and I'm again, drawing this analogy between like your stomach and the plant's roots, but um, the, the microbiome on the plant's roots is incredibly important for things like nutrient uptake, um, tolerance to, to drought and other stressors. So um, Grant mentioned that there are many mutualists in the soil, including mycorrhizal fungi, which are well known as a, a plant mutualist. If you take a basic ecology class um, in your, your undergraduate education, you're probably gonna learn about mycorrhizal fungi. They are fungi that associate with plant roots. 80% or more of plants in the world have mycorrhizal fungi associated with them at, at least one time or another. And those fungi, they have teeny tiny little filaments skinnier than roots and they can like go through all the soil, um, and they're really good at nutrient absorption and they give the plant nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus that might otherwise be hard for the plant to acquire. And then the plant in turn gives them sugar, um, carbon that they, they, the plant has fixed. They trade sugar essentially for soil nutrients with these mycorrhizal fungi. And so that trade um, is pretty well described in the literature. There's tons and tons of studies um, that have demonstrated that this is a very common mutualism. It doesn't always act as a mutualism, but in general, um, there's lots of species of mycorrhizal fungi and they're often very beneficial. And their presence can be beneficial um, in the context of pathogens too, because mycorrhizal fungi, um, some types of mycorrhizal fungi are um, on the exterior of the root, essentially sort of um, blanketing the outside of the root and, and being a physical barrier against pathogens um, coming into the, the root. Um, but they also just make the plant healthier and a healthier plant is better able to, to tolerate or resist infection, um, both because its immune system is stronger um, and because um, it's, it's just healthier overall. So it, it can sort of tolerate um, a certain amount of disease. Um, so just like for humans, uh, a healthy microbiome in plants might be beneficial. And um, Grant's work really gave us the first window into that, um, at least for our lab, uh, because he used these soils that come, as he said, from the conspecifics, like from those species in the field. He took those soils, um, put them on the plants in the greenhouse, and then added a pathogen experimentally. And the plants that have that live microbiome, the yogurt, if you will, uh, were survived so much better than the plants that didn't have the yogurt. So um, as you mentioned, Juliana, there's so much in science that's unknown. It, it's kind of amazing. Like, yes, we know that yogurt is good for people, but th there's so much that we don't know about the microbiome. Um, we are just beginning to describe it both in 
animal systems and in plant systems. There are even sometimes microbes um, that we discover with a sequencing approach whose function is entirely unknown and who are undescribed at the species level. So this is really like the frontier in a lot of ways. And so I said, I boldly called it yogurt for your plants. It's pretty bold at this stage. Yes, we know that there are beneficial microbes in the soil, 100%. There is like no question that there are beneficial microbes in the soil. There are also, as Grant also mentioned, there are pathogens in the soil too. And the, the lower um, disease susceptibility of our um, plants that he inoculated with the quote unquote yogurt, that actually might be due to just pathogen load. Like if a plant is experiencing a bunch of low level infection, its immune system might be kind of geared up. Um, I realize this is a very loose analogy, but um, it, it might be essentially kind of primed to fight off infection because of the presence of pathogens. So it might not even be mutualists at all. It might be pathogens that are essentially competing with other pathogens and that pathogen-pathogen competition could lead to reduced levels of disease and infection. Or the, the pathogens that were present might be leading to an immune system kind of reaction that, that leads to less infection. So there's lots of mechanisms that could be at play and um, therefore lots of future work that could be done, which is exciting because it's job security for us. Um, I, I could see, you know, the next 30 years could easily be spent trying to fully understand this idea of yogurt for your plants or whatever other interactions are going on in there, including pathogen, pathogen interactions um, and other interesting complexity. Thank you for reminding me all the things I love about science and rhododendrons. It's just, I, you know, the, the what we don't know piece is what excites me about science. I don't get excited about what we do know. I get excited about where that leads me that we don't know. Um, I just want to pump up, we, uh, we just had a paper come out, Jean, where we looked across the phylogeny and we found that the microbes on leaves and roots are different across these different lineages. So just to wrap it around to that phylogenetic effect, those microbes that you have, that your microbiome um, as a plant is probably characterized by you know, your ancestry as well as the current conditions that you live in. So I think it's a super rich and interesting area of study and I'm, I'm super excited to see it go forward. And I know, Grant, you're currently working on some sequencing, are you not, to try to figure out who the heck was in that soil? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Currently, I'm working on a high-throughput sequencing experiment. We collected our soil samples from the pot, and, um, and the high-throughput sequencing will identify um, those will identify the fungal community in the soils so that we will know what the species are, what the soil microbial species are in the soils. And from the results, we expect to see, we expect to see any um, mutualistic fungal species. And also we expect to see any antagonistic fungal species so that we can tell the difference of the soil microbial composition between 
different is uh, between different experimental treatments. So, so you can try to determine who caused the effect that you saw in the live soil, at least on a basic level. Was it mycorrhizae? Was it uh, other kind of bacteria? There's also antimicrobial bacteria that occur on plant roots. I'm excited to see what you find. I know you've been hard at work in the lab sequencing and it's sequencing is interesting because you get literally no information until you get your data back. You know, when you're running a greenhouse experiment, you kind of get these little tidbits. You're like, ooh, the treatments look different. Um, so that that doesn't happen at all with sequencing. You're just blindly doing it and then all the results come all at once. So I'm super excited to see what you're gonna find there, Grant. I expect to see what I will have. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awesome. Okay, Grant, as you look towards completing your PhD, what do you see as the next steps? Are you gonna keep working in rhododendron? My next step will be um, taking a postdoc work and I will keep on doing research. I think more work could be conducted on rhododendrons as the development of advanced techniques. For example, molecular analysis could be applied to learn why some rhododendron species are susceptible or resistant to pathogens. Maybe more and more beneficial soil microbes will be identified in the future, which might better explain the below ground mechanisms of rhododendron susceptibility to pathogen or other relative questions. Um, this has been super fascinating conversation. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, I work closely with Gene. I have worked a lot with Grant um, through his project and I just learned something today. So thank you. Thank you for you know bringing the really, really fascinating deep dive into this topic. Uh, the last thing we want to do is we want to just learn a little bit more about you on a personal level. So um, for each of you, what got you interested in rhododendron? What got you interested in research? Um, how did you get to this moment where I'm interviewing you on a podcast? I'm always be impressed by the blooming rhododendrons. Uh, there are beautiful flowers and, and many hybrids with all kinds of colors. They are very, very beautiful. I enjoy strolling in the rhododendron garden. <laughs> I, so um, I enjoy strolling in the rhododendron garden every May or June. When I'm working in the field, I can also enjoy the beautiful scenery. So I think this is what really motivates me to do ecological research on rhododendrons. I concur, a field site at a botanical garden in May filled with rhododendrons, I have felt like I was the luckiest scientist in the whole entire universe. So I 100% appreciate and understand that motivation because they are delightful, they are. Yeah. How about you, Jean? Similar um, to both of you, I think the just like the pure aesthetic joy of some of this work is very motivating for me. I think 
my love of plants came first. My love of research is definitely secondary to my love of just plants themselves. Um, and at the risk of truly embarrassing myself, when I was a kid, um, I can remember geeking out on plants at like seven years old. Um, I can remember reading plant encyclopedias and taking notes <laughs> about like gardening encyclopedia stuff. Um, and I can remember that if I was naughty, my parents would take my book away. I mean, really, like that was just my favorite thing. I loved not only the plants themselves, reading about them, learning about them. Um, and doing the field work where we run around holding Arboretum and pollinate gorgeous flowers has been such a privilege. So that really was a huge draw of the rhododendron system is just the aesthetics of that system. It's so beautiful and it's so fun um, to do that work. And it turns out to answer really interesting research questions at the same time. So it's been very compelling. Um, I feel like we, we could continue doing this work for um, probably decades. Um, and I think we would continue to learn more new and interesting things from it as a study system, not only that matters for gardeners who you know love to grow and enjoy the beautiful flowers, for the nursery industry um, who relies on these kinds of plants for making money, but it's also just answering basic research questions that I think are gonna be really important as, as I said, as climates get rougher and rougher, I think contributing to our future food security, even in some small way would be a major contribution um, that I, I would feel really good about. So it, it's been such a joy to work on rhododendrons. Yeah, that's, it's important. And it's, you know, it's interesting to think the diversity, the variation that we keyed in on as just beauty. That's what makes rhododendrons so interesting from an ecology, evolutionary biology perspective. That variation, like, oh, wow, how did it come about? Like, what is it doing? What is the, what is the function of variation that we see? So I love the way you described how you basically wrap the, the beauty and the appeal from the human perspective is why it's a great study system. That is very cool. So Jean, um, in that regard, I know you've been working on some projects where you can get home gardeners involved in research. So can you tell us a little bit more about that endeavor? Yes, let me please plug one tiny thing. Um, this is still in the works and very much pilot stage. But I am, and Juliana also, uh, we are working on um, some databasing projects that will involve characterizing leaves of rhododendron. And we're very enthusiastic about hobbyists collaborating with us to um, measure some of these leaf traits. So there's a project that I'm working on, I'm calling it RA Leafy for rhododendron and azalea leaf traits. Um, and as we work out the, the project and the methods, I'll be looking for people to collaborate with. And I'd be really excited if you're a rhododendron enthusiast, if you have some in your backyard, um, if you are willing to take some photos and mail us some leaves, I would be very enthusiastic about talking to you. My email is J, B as in boy, M as in Mary, 122 at casece.edu. Um, and just feel free to shoot me an email if you're thinking to yourself, what fun that would be to just like do a little bit of science, contribute to this 
this rhododendron research in some way, um, I'd, I'd love to talk to you more. So feel free to shoot me an email. Thanks a lot. And thank you, Juliana, for, for hosting the podcast. It's super fun. Um, and thanks also to Grant for many years of hard work that are really helping us learn a lot of fun stuff about rhododendrons. Yeah, I, you know what, thank you for being here and sharing your time and your story with everybody. Thank you, Grant, for sharing your research. Thank you, Juliana, again, for inviting me to participate in this interview. Uh, I think this is a really wonderful opportunity to learn and share my experience. Thank you. Fabulous. Curious to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode? Visit our website at www.rhododendron.org. Here you'll find tons of rhododendron resources, including tutorials, blogs, events, databases, and more. Click on the podcast link on the homepage to find more episodes, suggest a topic for a future episode, and get in-depth information about the people, places, and plants featured here. Until next time, keep carrying that torch for rhododendron, and don't forget to talk endlessly about this podcast to all your friends and family.